This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run, uh, is out traveling today. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresign Food Services, and our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. Uh, this was a big week for inflation news. Uh, a lot of commentary coming out on what inflation means for the Fed. Uh, I'm going to give our reaction to the inflation report, and then we're going to have a great conversation on thematic investing and growth investing with Haim Israel, uh, a key strategist at B of A, uh, on all his outlook for the growth sector, which had been hit by the very high inflation and very aggressive Fed all through last year. So first, here, let's just re- respond quickly to the CPI report. So uh, we've been saying on Behind the Markets that CPI inflation was a rear view issue that Siegel's been saying inflation is dead. Uh, And what you had was a headline number that declined on a monthly basis. Uh, So so deflation, uh, but, you know, small 0.1%. You know, the core CPI was up 0.3 because of that same shelter component that we've been talking about is a backwards looking indicator. The shelter component was up eight tenths on the month, which was what drove the core CPI to be up three tenths. I mean, what's fascinating when you look at the last six monthly prints, they're all very modest and you've got four of them that have been declining. So if you say, but why is the Fed so focused on inflation? They're focused on inflation six to 12 months ago, things back from June of 2022 and before, as we get to the second half, we might be talking about outright deflation prints for the trailing 12 months. Um, that's one of the charts that we've been putting out, that I've been putting out on Twitter, is looking at the core CPI. If you put in various measures of alternative shelter calculations, if you use the Case-Shiller indexes that the professor has talked about as a good indicator for housing prices, if you use the Zillow rent ent- estimates, and you annualize just this this latest monthly change, we'd have negative 4% using the Case-Shiller on core CPI, negative 2.7% using Zillow rental indexes, uh, you know, when the actual core CPI annualized using the official BLS is in the threes, positive threes. So you have a major difference if you use what we think housing is doing in the real world versus what housing is doing in the BLS statistics. So, you know, they, they've they been talking about at the Fed, they, they recognize some of this, yet they're not setting policy based on this real-time inflation. Now, the bond market is is absolutely not believing what the Fed is saying. I mean, there, if you think about what the bond market's doing, the bond yields have collapsed. The 10-year has gone below 3.5%. Uh, the, the, the short term has also moved down. People are starting to say uh, the Fed is talking tough, but really, will they act tough? Uh, you know, just a few more things. You have Nick Timoros, who's been the, the Fed whisperer from the Wall Street Journal. He's also starting to put these annualized rates. You know, Professor Siegel and I were were putting out the latest monthly data annualized to show the housing impulse was very different than the trailing 12 months looks. And you get numbers before you're getting numbers in the sevens. Now you're getting numbers in the sixes for the trailing 12 month. But when you start looking at annualized impulses, that's again where we were saying you have negative inflation um, when you analyze the latest monthly data. Timoros put out uh, December CPI, three-month annualized rates, core goods down 4.8, shelter positive 9.2, or this is what's not really reflective of reality, and then services less shelter, positive 1.2. Uh, you know, and that shelter is a key component. It's in that 30 to 40% range in core CPI. Uh, you know, there's whole this whole question of whether you should even look at shelter. Uh, my friend Sam Ryan's economist, uh, down in Houston has been saying, you know, in, in Europe, they don't even use housing as a component in, in their inflation statistics because they think of it as an investment, less of a, a consumption. Now, you could have different opinions on the importance of housing 
as a, a CPI basket. Um, you know, but now what does this all mean for the Fed? You have the Fed people. Uh, you haven't really heard them change tones. You have our local Philly Fed president, Pat Harker, uh, voting member now, talks about hikes of 25 basis points being appropriate going forward and that they expect, he expects, that they will raise rates a few more times this year. Now, Siegel's been saying they shouldn't even hike in February, but that February could be the very last hike. Uh, Harker saying a few more times, maybe he means two more times as a few more times. Uh, and you say, is there a big difference between, um, you know, if they did one versus two, given how high rates are already, uh, if you're at 475 versus five, does it really matter? Uh, and, and that's largely true. There's not gonna be that much of a difference, but. In, in terms of the general direction, we do think they should be pausing. Now, you've got Bullard, who's been was one of the most hawkish early members, saying the market's still not pricing enough upside possibility of higher inflation. So you still have the, some of these Fed members singing this tune that they need to keep these rates higher for longer. Again, we don't believe them. The market doesn't believe them. Uh, you know, we think they're going to start to recognize it. But the employment report gives some confirmation. You haven't seen major weakness uh, in employment and jobs. You're starting to see trickles of anecdotes of some layoffs, but not major job losses. And that gives the Fed, you know, the Fed's been saying they want a, a better demand supply balance between wages uh, and, and the too much, not enough workers giving wage pressure again we don't think they should do that workers are trying to catch up with inflation you've had negative real wage growth it's not like wages are pushing a wage price spiral that's not our view well uh we're gonna get more from the professor next week on his reaction to this inflation report and all that's going on but i know that those were his main comments i'm gonna now turn the conversation to time israel who is an equity strategist at b of a research. Uh, he focuses a lot on thematic investing. Uh, I also have here with me to, to help co-host this discussion, Christopher Gennady from Wisdom Tree, our global head of research. He also focuses on a lot of thematic investing concepts. Uh, hi, Chris. Welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks so much for being here, uh, Jeremy, Chris. Thank you. It's uh, going to be a fun conversation. Haim, uh tell our listeners a little bit about what you focus on uh, at, at B of A. I mean, thematic investing has been one of the great areas of uh, growth uh, in terms of, of interest in research and interest in, in our world, in the ETF world. There's been an explosion of thematics as a new type of sector investing. I'm curious the approach that you take, and then I want to get your, your state of the world view here, but, but how, how have you approached thematic investing from B of A's perspective? Of course. Thank you. Uh, so we define thematics as the mega trends that are going to impact our life in the next 5, 10, 20 years in the future. We do not focus on single technologies which come and go. We do know that. We see that all the time. But we try to focus on what's going to really change our lives, good or bad, unfortunately. Uh, here in Bank of America, we have the widest coverage of mega trends or themes that, as we call them here, uh, more than 30. We split them under three categories. The first category for us is innovation. So you will find mega trends or themes like big data, AI, cybersecurity, privacy, health tech, and so on and so on. The second category for us is people. Everything that has to do with demographic, it so eventually all comes down to people. So you'll find mega trends like big, like uh, uh, aging, bottom billions, education, inequality, um, Gen Z, Gen Y, and so on. And of course, you're not going to be surprised about our third category, which is Earth. Everything that is impacting our planet. Uh, You'll find mega trends like climate change, renewable energy, storage, hydrogen, um, and, and, and so on and so on, water, waste, trash, and so on. Um, so all of that together said we are a, we have by far the widest coverage on the street in terms of research. Um, I have to say one thing in advance. So when you talk about those kind of mega trends, thematic investing, our approach in Bank of America is a very holistic one. You cannot talk about one megatrend without referring to another. So I cannot look at 
cybersecurity or robotics or climate change as a standalone theme. Today, when you talk about climate change, for example, you spend much of your time talking about technology. You talk about uh, about uh, uh, about people, about demographics, about the, the social impact of all of this. So our approach is very, very holistic when we are talking about thematics. Um, and the second thing which I have seen happening a lot on the street is that when we are talking about thematics, we are talking about the good and the bad. Unfortunately, some of those mega trends which we are covering today are, are not positive, are, are worrying, but they are happening one way or another in quality, climate change, um, uh, security, privacy, and so on and so on. So we have to discuss those kind of things because they are shaping our lives. Now, you know, a lot of the themes uh, and megatrends you talked about are, are very much correlated with, you know, the mega growth rally that you had really for the last 15 years. Uh, you know, it's been, been value type of stocks have been the big uh, dogs in the market until last year, last year, uh, the Nasdaq sold off more than the S and P and the Dow. Uh, what, where, where do you see the state for growth investing generally? Before we dig into the individual themes, is it all about the Fed and macro, or will there be a micro story that comes back uh, this year? Well, I actually believe it is a macro story, but it's a very different macro story than what we usually talk about when we're talking about uh, about uh, about trends and markets like interest rate and inflation and so on. I think the macro story over here is that we are in unprecedented times of technological acceleration, or as we call it in thematics, tech acceleration. Um, and those may be cyclically or short-term or mid-term are being impacted by macro conditions, but the bottom line is that this time is unprecedented in terms of, of technological advancement, flow of information, big data analytics, and so on and so on. Uh, and let me give you a couple of examples. No, when, uh, when you think about where we were, give or take, 10 years ago. No, uh, Jeremy, the first iPhone was uh, invented or, or been launched in 2007 for a smartphone. Um, the mass adoption, globally mass adoption of smartphone happened in 2010, that meaning that probably part of our listeners today have a smartphone for give or take around 10, 11 years. That's roughly about it. Can you even imagine your life? Can you tell me this is a mega trend that has been impacted because of interest rate at 2% or 3% or 4%? Not at all. We are living in times which have never, ever seen as before. And when I'm trying to understand where we're right now with the cycle, because eventually, you know, we cannot ignore macroeconomic trends. I think that this kind of events that we're seeing in the market right now, and we have seen that technology and growth has been under a lot of pressure, both on the market, is very similar to 2000. So in 2000, some of us will refer to the tech bubble. Um, but I don't see that. I don't see it as, as, as the blow up of the tech bubble. Actually, I see it as a natural evolution. Uh, we had the internet and the internet was is, impa is still impacting our life. Yes, and many companies unfortunately have went bankrupt and many technologies uh, have disappeared during the way. But out of 2000, we got Apple and Google and Amazon and Netflix and, 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 and PayPal and so on. Um, those companies were born in the 2000.com uh, revolution. So we, I think we are in the same situation right now. We cannot ignore the fact that over the last 10, 15 years, uh, interest rate has have been going down and the cost of funding was going down quite dramatically. Uh, but I think that what we're seeing right now is that some countries are going to disappear. Some technologies and some uh, and, and some corporations are going to be under a lot of pressure. But I have no doubt that the next fangs of the world are being born today. Whoever is going to outlive this time, because again, you cannot differentiate it from the macroeconomic conditions. Um, technologies are getting stronger, and whoever's going to outlive those current market environment is probably going to become up stronger. So, as I said, I have no doubt that the next fangs of the world are being born today. I'm going to let Chris jump in in a second, but I want to give one more macro question to kick us off here. I mean, I, I think. Uh, that's a great background there and looking for the next fangs interesting you know one of the big stories this year is all this technology acceleration and adoption uh in, in the smartphone last 10 years you're saying you know from an economist view people sort of wondered where is it showing up in productivity statistics you know last year was one of the worst productivity levels we've had in our economy ever um 
And, you know, now what, we tend to be a little bit more optimistic on the economy this year, thinking we could have actually job layoffs, but positive productivity, people getting rid of the less productive workers, and, and that actually leading to a better productivity environment this year, maybe helping avoid a recession. But there's been some stories around like how big tech, like the, the stocks you talked about in Amazon, Meta, uh, Google, have basically doubled their workforces for the last three years. Um, do you see, and you're starting to see headlines of, well, crypto certainly in, in the headlines every day on, on layoffs, um, but you're, you're seeing some big tech firms start to lay off. Where, how do you see that productivity comment? How do you see the general employment outlook for these big tech firms? So again, I, I think you cannot detach the two things. So yes, we've been in an era of, of, of free money and very low cost of funding, which increased dramatically workforce in many segments and many companies. But I think if we try to avoid that and look at slightly, uh, uh, no, slightly above that, we're in an era that productivity just increases. Now, it does not necessarily say that the workforce needs to increase. We are in an era of technology. We're in an era of robotics, of automation. Um, there has been some statistics saying that automation actually increased productivity by roughly 30 to 40% without increasing the workforce. Um, so we are, uh, we are we live in a time that from one side, demographic trends are changing dramatically. We see the new generation, uh, which is does not have the same work ethics as the older generation, not necessarily saying that they are less productive, not at all, uh, but looking at leisure time in a very different way. Same time, we have an era of automation that many, many of our professions have been automated. Um, uh, actually, today, uh, the task that is being spent by, uh, the, the, the time that is spent on tasks by automation by humans are give or take the same. Um, that was roughly 40, 60, only a couple of years ago, and now it's the same and should continue to increase. So we, we live in that kind of time that, no, we cannot measure productivity as we did. The third point that I have to highlight here that since 2000, since 2020, we were not living in times in, let's say, regular times. We had, for the first time ever in history, 85% of the global economy was shut down. That never, ever happened in history. It happened in 2020 because of COVID, not in world wars, not in recent pandemics, not during the Black Plague, not all of them, never ever 85% of the economy was shut down and the aftershocks are still happening. Um, and, uh, and I think that, no, when we, are, when we keep talking about macroeconomic cycles, we keep ignoring that. You know, some countries, you saw China is reopening, closing again. So the aftershocks are still happening as, as we speak. So I, I, I keep saying that I don't think that we can measure productivity as we used to. We have to look at it in very different ways. We have to understand data analytics. We have to understand data in general and how that is impacting a lot of companies are using way more data, meaning that to some extent, uh, the workforce need to change. And I'm not necessarily saying that they're going to be layoffs. I'm just saying that the tasks that humans are, 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 are doing right now have to change. And we have to think thinking about the job market in a very, very different way. We're talking with Haim Israel, who is uh, the head uh, of thematic investing at B of A Research. Uh, we've got Chris Gennady, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Chris, let's have you jump into the conversation here. Uh, where, where are you interested in going here? Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, and, and I, I can note to the audience, uh, I had the pleasure in uh, November of uh, partaking in an event uh, in London with uh, with Haim and his team. So I'd say if you, if you ever see an email with an opportunity to get together with uh, the Bank of America Research Group uh, to talk uh, thematics, I mean, the guest list, the topics, it's, uh, it's, it's really incredible stuff. Um, one of the things, time that we talked about at that point, and it's, it's the kind of topic where there's sort of new information that you sort of hear each week, maybe a bit less because I think uh, the leadership of Congress is having uh, some unique challenges in uh, the last couple of weeks. But you, you think back to some of the policy, uh, in, in a way, the U.S. passing a lot of policy and a lot of spending on sort of technology-oriented topics. It wasn't uh, the, the top of the line issue uh, until quite recently. So I'd love for you to, to Han, take us through what you think of the Inflation Reduction Act in particular. I know you had some interesting comments there and how 
something like that, you see that legislation, it, it almost, like you said, it has a holistic impact on all the themes probably at uh, Bank of America. Of course, and that, that's an excellent question, Chris, because we see the Inflation Reduction Act as part of a bigger game here that uh, that is, uh, is is feeding to one of our themes, which is the theme of independency and deglobalization. Now, when people are talking about the uh, about IRA, they usually are talking about the incentives for renewable energy and decarbonize our planet, and so on and so on. But I want to take a much more holistic approach over here, saying that. This feeds into uh, the theme of independency, the theme of deglobalization. Uh, we are uh, we live in an era that if one thing that the war in Ukraine have taught us that everything has been weaponized, every country for its own, uh, and things have been from energy to food to workforce to uh, to supply lines, everything could be weaponized, and countries have to start thinking about their relative advantages. Now. We live in a world of scarcity, and we are fighting over resources. If, it, if it's natural resources like lithium and nickel that we believe are going to be in structural deficit as soon as 24, 25, uh, some other rare earth metals, commodities like water, um, technologies like semiconductors, everything is in scarcity right now, and countries have to start developing their own resources. Now, what happened up until now is that um, this fight over resources, and again, I'm talking about resources in a much more holistic approach over here from commodities, natural resources, technology, human capital, everything around that. China was, was, a, was fighting over resources, was investing all over the world to get resources, to get access to resources. If you look at China, um, China itself is a country which do not have a lot of natural resources. But when you look at rare earth metals, China today is give or take around uh, 50% of all, uh, of all rare earth metals, 58% of all rare, rare earth metals uh, uh, mining. But across the supply line, they're close to 80, 90% for a country which have no natural resources. How that happened? Investment all over the world. Investments in Africa, investment in Southeast Asia, investment in emerging markets, even investments in Europe, the Belt and the Road projects, Huawei, telecom infrastructure, all of that happened. U.S. have to start thinking, and that's exactly where IRA came into, uh, into play. This is exactly when Repower EU came into play, getting back the relative advantage and man and manufacturing back home. So when you look and deep dive into IRA, what you've seen is that, and it goes hand in hand with the Semiconductors Act, it goes hand in hand with so many other bills that came uh, into power just recently, that the U.S. is starting to think about the relative advantages. The U.S. is starting to think about reshoring a lot of the activity and not be relying on any other countries. Um, one key example, for example, is energy, and that's what's probably the the bill itself came most into focus. Um, we've seen that right now that what happened when you are relying your energy we uh, import from other countries. We just had a good example from the war in Ukraine. Um, but if you look at the broader picture over here, China was actually moving into energy independence for a very long time and developing their own, the other source of, of, uh, um, of, of, of energy. And by that also dominating cleantech by far. If you look at China today, they have most investments if it's in batteries and cleantech technologies and solar panels and everything around that. Uh, and if we are moving into a world that energy is, is energy independence is key, it again increasing dramatically reliance on China and US cannot afford that. Um, so US has to increase dramatically investment in all those areas. It's not a question about decarbonization at all. It's a question about world domination. It's really the same as we've been no, no, a couple of decades ago when uh, the, the world has been relied on oil. Um, today, the world is relying on, on, uh, on, on renewable energy. Not because I need to decarbonize our plant. That's completely relevant to the question over here. It's because I cannot rely my energy supply from other countries. That's one thing. The second thing is today renewable energy is cheaper. We are heading into a world of recession. We are heading into a world of, of, of slow economic activity and inflation. 
if I have an ability to develop other source of energy, which are going to be cheaper, and renewable energy today is cheaper, doesn't matter if you look at solar, wind, or whatever, it is cheaper, countries are going to move there. And China today dominates across the clean tech space, and U.S. has to close the gap. Uh, so that is a big part of, of, uh, of IRA. The third point is just relying on, on inflation. Uh, shortening supply line, increasing employment back home is a key for every country right now. And let me just give you one very simple example. It's a very um, extreme example about how inefficient supply lines are today. Lithium, we all want batteries. We don't want electric cars. But did you know that when you buy an electric car today, the lithium in your battery, before you even get your, your car, the lithium in your battery has to travel up to 50,000 miles before you even start driving. It's been mined in Chile, it's refined in China, cathodes in Japan, assembly in the United States, selling in Europe. Completely, completely inefficient. So I can't, I have to produce it, I have to mine it in Chile, I have no other choice. But all the other processes, why I can't do on US soil or European soil? dramatically decreasing the cost, increasing employment, bringing back technology and IP back home and R&D back home. That's exactly what we're seeing all over the world right now. Uh, so I think that to have to look at the, at the Inflation Reduction Act, Repower EU, the semiconductors as one bucket, it's all about independency, self-reliance from here onward. And how relate, related to that point, because we, too, spend a lot of time looking at energy. We saw uh, a, a graphic uh, depiction on the website of uh, Redwood Materials, which is a, a U.S. company, newer company that's doing uh, a lot of recycling efforts. And it was amazing to think uh, if you're buying an electric vehicle, uh, the uh, materials in the battery have potentially circled uh, the earth to come together. So, you know, we, I guess, as, as a result of the WTO and around 2000 created certain value chains and supply chains. And like you said, that's really the dynamic that's shifting. But as an investor, you kind of step back and you say, there are so many different types of energy that might be exciting or similarly might not work out in the coming years. You go on one end of the spectrum and they had some announcements toward the end of the year about something like fusion, which is always 20 to 30 years away and might still be the case. Uh, then you have like those small scale nuclear reactors and you have countries like France where they have depended a lot on nuclear reactors and countries like Germany that until recently were saying we're, we're gonna move away. So countries are sort of debating the nuclear question they're thinking about offshore wind, onshore wind. They're thinking about solar, which dramatically, like you're, you were saying, has become so much cheaper. And then you go all the way to the other end of the spectrum where you've got the, the fossil fuels, which are certainly still being used. And when countries need power, you hear about coal. You hear, you know, China, China's not above importing some coal from Australia if it suits their needs. So it, it feels like the world is using a bit of everything. But if you're thinking, like you said, with Bank of America, five years, 10 years, 15 years out into the future, is there any particular type of energy that gets you excited based on what you're seeing? Or are you just tending to think, look, the world actually needs all of these. So any strategy needs to be sensitive to that fact. Sure. So uh, let, let me start now from, from the conclusion. And the conclusion is that we are reaching peak oil. I know it's very hard to understand you know, or talk about the concept of peak oil, which we believe is actually five to six years down the line. That's roughly about it. Um, when oil is in such high demand and, and the world is, is entering into a massive energy crisis right now and, and, and Europe is struggling with a very cold winter, uh, but this is where we are heading. But I have to be clear about the concept of peak oil. Oil is going to be here forever. I don't see a situation, and talking about forever, definitely the next couple of centuries, I don't see a situation that we're going to completely detach ourselves from oil, but the growth of oil is going to peak roughly in five years' time very, very soon. Um, 
the question about alternative energies, uh, and I have to say alternative is not necessarily clean energies. It's uh, clean energies is a big part of it, but it's not necessarily it. Uh, there's a lot of debate around that. I think we're going to move to a combination of, of, of alternative energies, which you're all going to be eventually rely on two things. A, scalability, B, prices. Especially when, again, we are in a world that economy, uh, that the, the global economy is heading into a slowdown. We are not just going to move to decarbonize our plants. That's prob that is the goal, and I do believe that's the goal. But if I ask myself, we knew about climate change for the last 60, 70 years. No, I, I, I was born into a world that you no, know, already climate change was was debated. Uh, but in the last six months or so, seven months or so, we've achieved more progress in alternative energy than we did in 50, 60 years. That is the reason. The reason is economy. There's an incentive, economic incentive to move to alternative energy right now. There's a geopolitical incentive to move to alternative energy right now. And technologies are getting there. Um, so it's not necessarily just about clean tech. Uh, why do I believe, to answer your question about which technologies are going to be there, uh, I think that they said if we are talking about scalability and we are talking about uh, about economics, the one that uh, the, the couple of ones which I think are going to be interesting is first of all nuclear is making a big comeback. Many countries are talking about that because probably this is the only technology, although it takes many years to develop, uh, that can offer you massive scalability. We've seen Germany doing a U-turn. I completely agree with you. The, uh, the timing of closing a lot of their plants was very unfortunate, which posed another problem to, uh, because after you do uh, a power plant goes cold, it takes at least seven years to, uh, to open it up again. You can't do it like overnight. Um, the second one, which in terms of scalability, which I think would be interesting, is hydrogen. Uh, a lot of investment recently. Hydrogen has been a big topic back in 2020. To, uh, and and of course because of COVID and because of of the recent events it's been uh, interest went down now it's going up again because hydrogen first of all the price on green hydrogen has fallen down dramatically while the price of the non-clean hydrogen blue hydrogen brown hydrogen gray hydrogen have, have shot up because of the fossil prices uh, so today at least in Europe it's cheaper to produce renewable uh, green hydrogen clean hydrogen uh, US is heading into the same way so I think that hydrogen is is, is about to make a big comeback um, I am a big believer of course in the alternative uh, uh, energies of, of wind and solar because the price are coming down and today to produce energy units with renewables is give or take around globally, global 25% cheaper than fossil, 25%. Again, it depends on the technology, it depends on the region, it depends on the regulation, but average, we are talking about 25% cheaper. So we're seeing about that. But one of the things that we have learned from the crisis is that we keep talking about other forms of energy, but we completely ignore the third element, which is storage. Um, and storage was not developed enough. And we are big believers in storage. We think the storage is uh, especially, you know, the, the main technology today is, of course, about batteries, but there are other forms of storage as well. If it's ammonia, if it's other uh, other areas that we, you can store energy altogether, um, it's going to have to take into consideration, and we will need more and more capacity around that. Uh, we're all looking about moving the market to EVs. EVs are shorting up all over the world, so we will continue to develop storage needs. We'll continue to develop uh, the metals which are uh, required for that, and that's not just necessarily lithium. There are other forms as well that will have to be taken into consideration over here. So I'm seeing a basket of alternative energies. Uh, and again, I have to be very clear, alternative energies are not necessarily clean energies uh, that will be developed, and countries are going to move to them very fast. I just want to know, before I return the call back to you, remember one thing. 80% of the planet is importing energy and not exporting energy. And if 80% if have a cheaper, more scalable alternative, they will move there just because of the economics. And if it fits my geopolitical need about not being dependent on anything, even better. So that's why I'm a big, big believer that peak oil is coming. Wow, big statements from Haim Israel. Five years, six, five to six years peak oil, but still with us for centuries. So I think that's a very interesting uh, part of the discussion, Haim. So it, it's, it, it, maybe just to wrap up that conversation before we go over to some other of these tech sources, 
the, the when you say peak oil, that's the peak. You, you basically the demand, the the consumption of oil. How many? We're about 100 million barrels a day. You think that's basically going to peak out, and and the demand will decline from there. That's what you mean by peak oil. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I think that. So we are heading right now. I think the last number I've seen was 110 million barrels a day. Um, I think that we are, if I recall correctly, we are talking about roughly getting to 120 million a day, give or take. Again, don't uh, we didn't count on the barrel, but this is give or take where we're heading. Uh, and from there, the demand is going to stabilize and slightly going down. And again, uh, Jeremy, as you said, I again highlighting. Oil is here for centuries. We are not gonna. Oil is not gonna disappear. It all comes down to if in the last couple of decades or centuries, oil only went up. This is where we are picking, and and the inflection point is very very close. Very good. The uh, so in terms of you, you mentioned early on, uh, you look at innovation as one of the big categories, and there's a lot of sub themes uh, within innovation. Um, certainly in the geopolitical world. Uh, being that one of the key risks here, cyber is one of the key things. What, what are, where are some of the things in innovation you are most excited about today? Maybe things that have come under the most pressure or, or things that you think are, are very relevant today? Sure. So when, when we talk about innovation, I, I think it really relies to, relates to the, the, what we spoke just in the beginning about how fast the world is changing. And, and, and Jeremy, let me give you a couple of points here about, uh, about that. So did you know that every day, Every day we generate 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. Every day. Now, quintillion is a million trillion bytes of data. Now, there are two things which are really fascinating about this number, about uh, which really highlights the level of innovation here. The first thing that those 2.5 quintillions are doubling every two years. In 2000, it was every 15 years. In 2010, it was every six years. Now global data is multiplying every two years. So when we are talking about, you know, slow economic, macroeconomic condition, recession, that's over. I keep saying that, you no, know, next year is going to be four quintillion and six and a half quintillion after that. So I don't really care if interest rates are 4% or 5%. That's, that's completely irrelevant. Um, the second thing is that now we have the technologies to use more of this 1% or not more, more of these 2.5 quintillion bytes of data. Processing power is up 1 trillion folds since the Apollo 11 moon landing, 1 trillion folds. Actually, it's not just the, number, the calculations and, and processing power is jumping so fast. It's the cost per calculation because semiconductor price also went up. But of course, the calculation went up dramatically. So actually, if you look at the cost per calculation, it went down 99.9999% since Apollo 11. Uh, so we have the technologies. We have it scalable enough. Big data analytics, AI, machine learning, deep learning, we are just at the beginning of the beginning of the revolution here. Um, what that means, which technologies are youth, as you ask, I think are gonna, are gonna take big time. So first of all, AI, big data analytics, we just know we're just at the beginning of this revolution. I don't think we understand that. If you look at the current AI trends, one of the key things that we are highlighting is by the end of this decade, 2030, AI will outsmart us. So we have ChatGPT, we have all those funky applications recently, um, but the bottom line is that AI will outsmart us by the end of this decade. I've seen some research saying that no, by 2026, AI can write essays much better, by 2028 can actually do uh, academic paperwork much better than professors. We are heading that way. Every year that passes, in terms of IQ, AI just by four years. So no wonder that by the end of this decade is going to outtake us. But one of the things that we are highlighting about AI is that it's not just outsmart us. AI will outthink us as well and outfeel us. Emotional AI. I think that's actually fascinating development that we're seeing today. That today, I don't know if you know that, but all your smart devices, your Apple Watches, your Alexas, your Dots, know more about your feelings than your family. Think about the opportunities and threats over here as well. So I think that's that's one uh, technology that I think is, is will continue to out uh, to uh, to grow up big time. The second one you've, you've highlighted of that is is cybersecurity. We are big believers in in cybersecurity. Uh, 
It has been a theme that has not been working out in the last couple of years. Uh, many reasons for that, but I think the inflection point is happening here and now, and that's the war in Ukraine. I think the war has taught us that it's not my problem, it's not my company problem anymore. From here onward, it's my country problem. Countries are being attacked. Wars are being fought on the cyber level from here onward. The U.S. critical infrastructure is being attacked 5,000 times a day. So no wonder countries are spending billions and billions of, on defenses and analytics and so on on cyber. Now, for me, cyber is the beast that cannot be controlled anymore. Why? Because Jeremy Hifley had this conversation back in 2014. I would tell you there are 122,000 cyber attacks all over the world every week. 122,000. This number jumps now to 1.8 billion. From 122,000 to 1.8 billion attacks every week all over the world. All of those attacks are being done, almost all of those attacks are not done by hackers, by, by robo-hacking and the smart algorithms and so on. 90% um, of all e-commerce traffic today are hackers. Um, it cannot be controlled. And more and more we are moving online and smart devices and IOTs and everything is, uh, and everything is hackable. This problem only intensifies. And we keep talking, for example, let me just show how big this thing is and how ignored this thing is. How much time we spent in 2021 and 2022 talking about climate change and net zero and all of that? This was the number one theme. The total economic damage of climate change and extreme weather in 2021 was $3 trillion worldwide. It's a huge number. Cybersecurity was at seven. This year, cybersecurity is actually going to be closer to 10, while probably climate change, at least year to date, is on the run rate of slightly three and a half trillion. Uh, so it's just growing much faster, um, two times climate change. And, and the more and more we're moving online, the more and more this is becoming a big issue. And I think the inflection point is happening here now, understanding that this is a national problem uh, going forward. The other technologies which we are big believers in, robotics, because of the deglobalization trend, I think that's continued. That, of course, goes hand in hand with machine learning and deep learning and AI um, and, and continue to develop. But if we are moving into a world of deglobalization, of automation, robotics is, is definitely going to be, and smart infrastructure is definitely going to be one of the key, uh, key players over here. Health tech, another one that I think is going to be very interesting, especially after COVID. I think the world have understood that the way that the healthcare system was built up until now is completely inefficient. Worldwide, we are spending close to um, uh, close to eight trillion dollars every year on health tech, on healthcare. Sorry, uh, forty percent of this number, four zero, is going down the drain because of inefficiency, because we are using very old technologies. In countries which today are struggling with inflation and and deficits will have to find ways of reducing the same uh, and the sum and, and health tech is, is probably going to be one of the biggest winners over here. Uh, and maybe just take you a little bit more into the long term. Uh, we are big believers also in, in space tech. And I'm talking about especially about, about satellites, satellite imaging, nanosatellite, satellite communication. I'm not talking about astro mining and so on. That's way, way into the future. Um, we are big believers in the industrial applications of the metaverse. Uh, I'm not talking about the metaverse that you know, we keep picturing, like socializing and gaming and shopping. I'm more talking about the industrial applications. Companies are already using metaverse and, and specific design omniverses in order to, um, uh, to design their products and, and increase efficiencies. And, and we think that's, that's going to be a big, uh, big thing for us going forward. There's so much we could drill into there. Um, how, how about I, I come back to how you started with AI, just a selfish one. Is, when, is, when is AI, you say, it's going to be smarter than us? Is it, which AIs are you using for B of A's stock selection research? Which one should we be all trying to figure out to replace ourselves here? Well, it's uh, well, there are a lot of different ways. So, no, I, I always joke and say that the you know the AI we keep using in in Bank of America is the thematic team. <laughs> I wish, but uh, um, 
there's there are different references, everything coming from, from different uh, companies that are developing AI. Uh, Google is reporting about some of their AI uh, capabilities. Microsoft is doing the same thing. So we need to keep on going and, and, and looking about, uh, uh, about different developments of, of AI. And as I said, the recent publications I've seen is that AI will outsmart us by, by the end of this decade. We all have to be figuring out how do we replace ourselves. It'll be very interesting technologies to uh, to be watching. I don't think Chris, we're going to replace ourselves, but we're going to have to think about new ways that, to use us. That's that's an interesting point. No, I keep referring about about uh, about the past and about how technology have actually did not really replace people, but change our professions. You know, uh, I remember when when I was growing up, uh, ATM came along. See that that's how old I am, uh, and we all thought that's going to be the bank killer. Right, the financial industry killer. No one's going to use uh, no 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 one's going to use people in the banking system anymore. No, now we have ATMs. But guess what happened? Productivity increased dramatically, and people just be instead of just counting money and giving money in the counters, have been moved to completely different positions and and new products. Excel and accounting. So I think that AI will develop a completely new way of 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 jobs, uh, and and develop the job market. But we have to think very differently. Like no, labor, uh, hard labor is going to be replaced by automation. Uh, blue collar will be replaced by automation. Uh, so the job market will definitely going to change. I do not necessarily think that we're going to have less workers, but some professions are going to disappear. Chris, we in our final. Uh... Five, seven minutes, how, where do you want to go in the last parts of our conversation? So I, I experienced the treat when uh, Hyman and his team were in uh, London, and uh, we, we haven't touched on it yet, but it was a very interesting topic uh, in London. I would love our audience to hear a bit more. Uh, it relates to sort of AI in the sense that human beings are really, they have a difficult time with these sort of exponential curves and technologies, because even if we say AI is in its early innings, uh, Alan Turing was talking about AI in the 40s. There was the sort of consortium that got together, I think, in 1955 up at Dartmouth, and they were talking about AI. And it took, you know, 50, 60 years to get to where we are today, where now we're starting to see different interesting applications happen. And so you put that in parallel and you say, okay, people are talking about quantum computing today. And we, we heard about it at uh, the, the Bank of America event, and they, they had, for instance, uh, the head of the, the group over at uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, and every cloud provider has their own iteration. But the world today is sort of wondering, maybe like they were wondering in 1955, we have this thing. We don't necessarily know exactly what it's going to be used for and how it's going to bring value, but we have a sense that the value it could bring at a certain point in the future could be massive. So as we get to sort of the end of our thematic discussion, Han, I'd love to hear your fresh take on uh, quantum computing. Of course, and, and I think Chris, you raised a very, very valid point uh, because I cannot think about technology in, in linear terms. I, I completely agree with you right now. Now, what we had 50, 60 years ago and we saw how the development happened, uh, things are going to change and accelerate dramatically. As I said, we're generating more data, processing power goes up. Uh, we have the tools, we have the, the capabilities. So from here, we're just going to move much, much faster. That's why to link it back to quantum computing, when everybody keeps telling me that you know quantum computing is going to take forever and we've seen uh, uh, developments happening very slowly, it's decades away, I, I do not agree. Uh, I think this is going to happen faster than, than what people are thinking. Um, for me, quantum computing is probably one of the biggest revolutions that we can see, theoretically. Um, Technically, the machine that can calculate everything, if you think of it from a pure theoretical point of view. Now, I, I try to look at at the reference in 2019 to illustrate how strong this technology is. So in 2019, Google have announced on quantum supremacy. What do they what does that mean? Google have officially publicly announced that in their labs their quantum computer made more calculations in 200 seconds than the IBM supercomputer, the fastest computer on the planet today, will make in 10,000 years. They met in 200 seconds. So Google, have, uh, IBM have changed this number, and there was some debate, but I think, but eventually, you know, there have been an agreement that this machine was so much stronger, no matter how you calculate the, the end results, by far than anything that we have on the planet today. And it keeps 
improving dramatically. So I'm a big believer this is going to happen much faster. We've seen different approaches. We've seen more and more money being invested in that. We've seen technology improving dramatically. Now, uh, you mentioned at the beginning of the, of, this, of the conversation, nuclear fusion. The combination of quantum computing and nuclear fusion could be a game changer that we didn't even think about. Why do I link those two technologies together? Uh, because one of the biggest, you know, nuclear fusion, we all know what it is. We, this is the holy grail of unlimited clean energy. Um, but the problem with nuclear fusion is that the amount of calculations that you need to control the plasma there's no computer on the planet that can actually do that today. So there are many other challenges, many, many other, but that's probably one of the biggest ones. If we'll have functioning quantum computing, we don't need like it's going to be upscaled dramatically. Think about what, what that means in terms of calculations. We can do all the calculations needed in an instant of a second. Um, that can leapfrog nuclear fusion. That can leapfrog a drug discovery, which is today a minimum of 15 years endless amount of calculation to come with one drug. Think about what could happen if we can do it like instantly. Um, uh, portfolio optimization, financial industry, there's not even one sector that I can think about that, you know, that, does, not have a, that does not have capabilities of a, that could be impacted by, by quantum computing. If you can just think about the machine that can calculate everything in no time. Now, again, I, I, I keep referring, you know, people are talking to me and even when we hosted Amazon, they were not, not, they were not committing on timeline. Everybody keep talking about years and years, if not even more than that. Uh, but as I said, 10 years ago, most of us did not even have a smartphone. Um, 20 years ago, most of us did not even serve the internet. Think about that. No, most of us did not have the internet. Like, no, it's it's the really, uh, no, the dot com bubble. Not not all not all of us were online. So, and that's twenty years. That's nothing if we compare where we were twenty years ago to today. That shows you, and every and that's the biggest mistake we can make with technology because every time we try to model technology, we think in linear terms, but it goes up exponential. Uh, and if we would take just a smartphone example that I gave, if we take the average estimate of all the different experts out there on smartphone over the years, and we try to average them out, the current amount of smartphone of, of mobile phones we have on the planet today, we're expected to be here in a, in a century. We missed it by a century because it jumped up exponentially. And that's exactly why I'm so excited about quantum computing. I'm, uh, you know, in a, in a time when everybody just says, hey, growth investing is all the Fed and interest rates. I mean, I think this is a conversation that gets people excited about the potential for the future. All of this, this new technology, your perspective has been uh, very, very interesting uh, and, and great, great work. And we appreciate you spending so much time with us here on Behind the Markets. Uh, any sort of closing thoughts or things that people, they can find you, things that uh, they should be looking out from, from your team? Sure, we continue to look at the world, how it changes. Thanks for and listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn yes, more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, so, yeah, at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM, channel 132, and our podcast producer, Daniel Brunis. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.